God, my welcome to you all this morning. If you're visiting with us, and I know there's some, we have been uh, studying the book of the Gospel of John, and we are near the end. And uh, <clears throat> this morning we're going to be talking about the resurrection. So, as you heard Pastor Josh read from 1 Corinthians 15, he, you, you might have checked your calendar to see what, if it was the right date, but uh, it's a, that's what we're going to be talking about. There are many theories of the resurrection have emerged over the years. Um, last Sunday, or the last time I spoke in this gospel, uh, the theory that was very prominent, the, the swoon theory, uh, was, uh, was in fact dealt with by John. John is writing uh, an apologetic letter that that doesn't mean he was uh, uh, apologizing for something wrong. It means he was defending the Christian faith. And uh, he's very careful to include those details that a person reading his gospel uh, sometime later would be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. And so the idea that Jesus uh, just fainted on the cross was dispelled by John in proving the fact that he did actually die. One of the other conspiracy theories that abounded uh, even at that time was the theory that Jesus had said he was going to uh, die and rise again, and so uh, some thought that his disciples would try to make that prophecy work, and they would steal his body. He, they would uh, hide his body so that people would think that he had risen from the dead. In fact, in Matthew's uh, Gospel, chapter 27, uh, the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell people. So in the context of of. Uh, John's teaching on the resurrection, he is he labors certainly to prove that his disciples did not steal the body. So I invite you to turn to John 20, John chapter 20, and we're going to read the passage that we're looking at today, John 20 verses 1 to 10. John 20, verses 1 to 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark 
and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that must rise that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Permit me to give some explanation to the story, and then I'll conclude with what I believe to be the the point of the story and the application for you and I today. You'll notice right away that uh, it is recorded it was the first day of the week. All four Gospels state the same thing. It was the first day of the week. Arthur W. Pink said, and I quote, Most fitting was it that the Lord Jesus, as head of the new creation, should rise from the dead on the first day of the week, intimating that a new beginning had been inaugurated. Unquote. You see, the Old Testament Sabbath initially celebrated God's first work of creation. The New Testament, or New Covenant Sabbath, so to speak, Sunday, celebrates the work of Christ in completing the new creation. Sunday is a day of celebrating the gospel, celebrating our salvation, celebrating the new creation. The church from this time onward believed it was right and good to gather on the first day of the week, Sunday, to worship. And how sad it is, and I recognize I'm preaching to the choir, but how sad it is that so many Christians make light of Sunday. Sundays for many is just another day to enjoy recreation, to do yard work, to visit. Sunday is intended by our Lord to be a day when we first and foremost gather and celebrate the fact that he rose from the dead. He heads a new creation of which by faith we are part of. 
may God cause us to reflect on that and apply that to our own lives. The first day of the week is indeed the Lord's day, and it should be celebrated and used for that purpose. As we continue, we are introduced to Mary Magdalene. In all of the synoptic gospels, I use the term synoptic gospels, you'll read that in literature on the New Testament. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three. And the reason they're called synoptic gospels is they are similar in their content. Remember, John is writing this one generation after that. He's writing to a generation of scattered Jews in Asia Minor. So John is particularly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, particularly gathering uh, facts and stories about Christ to convince a generation that never knew Jesus, only heard of him. But the other three Gospels were more current to the time of Christ. They're called the Synoptics. And all of the Synoptics record the fact that a group of women came to the tomb. But John emphasizes one woman, Mary Magdalene. Now, I have a tendency to want to talk about her, but you will see that the next time we look at the Gospel of John, in verse 11 and following, we'll actually talk about her encounter with the risen Lord, and I'll spend more time on Mary at that time. But John isn't in contradiction to uh, the other Gospels. Look at verse 2 of chapter 20. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they laid him. Speaking of the other women that were there. But John is focusing on Mary, and I believe the next time we study this gospel, we'll understand why he's chosen to focus on Mary Magdalene. So these women went to the tomb. They expected to find the stone. They expected to need help to roll it aside. They expected to see the body of our Lord. It wasn't even in their mind that the body might be gone. Matthew gives us even uh, more detail, and I invite you to turn to Matthew 28. And, and there's some incredible detail that John leaves out. And, of course, I'm going to not worry about the fact that he did, but it's, it's wonderful to get this detail because you might be here this morning saying, well, how did what was going on? What, why was the stone rolled away and what was happening? Well, in Matthew 28, we read, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, 
for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So you're asking, how did the stone get moved? Well, the Lord sent an angel. This angel's appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So there it moves the guards out of the way. The stone is moved. Now the guards are disposed of. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord, where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now, if you're a critic, right away you'll ask the question, okay, these women know, knew what happened. They, the angel told them that, the, that Jesus wasn't there, that he's risen. And yet when Mary comes back to meet Peter and John, he says, I don't know where he is. I don't know where they laid them. Please don't be surprised at that. My wife tells me lots of things that I forget a few minutes later. And more seriously, when anyone has experienced a trauma, it's not unusual that they forget. John has a tendency to give real details. He's proving a case. He's not leaving anything out. And so we realize that now these women come back and they tell uh, the disciples that the body is missing and they don't know where it is. Mary's immediate reaction is somebody's taken them. And so she told Peter and what is called the other disciple. I'm not sure if we talked about that before, but... There are two phrases that John attributes to himself. He, he rarely names himself in the gospel. He'll either refer to himself as the other disciple, or he will refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But it's always referring to John, the author, the apostle. When the Peter and the other disciple heard the news about the, the grave, what is recorded here is one of the famous first century foot races of all time. Apparently, uh, Peter and John started running towards the tomb, and uh, John gets there first, but he doesn't go in. He just peeks in. He he, he kind of sees the condition of the tomb. Characteristically, Peter comes next. And we've always known Peter to be the impetuous one, the one that would tread where angels fear to tread. And he bursts right into the tomb and gets a layout of what's going on. Notice verse 8. 
Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. So get, just get the picture. This is, this is like a, if, if you were reading this, you would, you would, it would strike a chord in you that what is being conveyed is real, is true. Like, why would you include who won the race? Other than you're portraying to a reader that you're giving an accurate account of what happened. So John comes and approaches the tomb door, notices the linen, but then Peter comes, second in the race, but first to bust in and take a look around and see what happened. Or, or, or did I say Peter? I meant John. John, uh, Peter comes in, and then John comes back in. So uh, John looks into the tomb, and he sees, and then in verse 8, we re- it is recorded for us by his own handwriting, by the inspiration of the Spirit, that what he saw caused him to believe. Believe in what? I would submit to you, believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 and 9 are the point of this story. Anytime you read a, an account in the Gospels where the author is giving an editorial comment, that should jump off the page to you and say this is very important. So look with me again at verse 8 and verse 9. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. John is speaking of himself. And then we have this comment, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Picture John writing this decades after the event. He's telling the story, and then as he looks back, he writes, at at that time, they did not understand the Scriptures, that Christ must rise from the dead. That's the point that I want you to see this morning, and I'm going to expound on that point. I'm, I'm impressed myself by the fact that John looked at the tomb and saw the way the linen and the face cloth was laying, and he believed at that time that Christ had risen from the dead. But in later reflection, he realizes that what was really going on there is that he and other disciples hadn't understood the Bible hadn't understood the scriptures. There's two points in the message today. Number one, the primary point is this story refutes the conspiracy theory that the disciples had stolen the body. This story refutes that theory. The second point is that this story gives a powerful testimony to the Scriptures. So if you're taking notes, that's that's the two points. One is it refutes 
the conspiracy theory, and two, that it makes a powerful statement about the scriptures. To the first point, John writes, he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The account of John trying to use my own uh, ability to illustrate, the account of John is that the body of Jesus was firmly wrapped in linen cloths with a special cloth covering his face. And what John witnessed was as if the body dematerialized, came through the cloths untouched and left and folded the face cloth beside the others. In a few weeks, we're going to look at a story where the risen Jesus comes to meet his disciples. And the story teaches us that the glorified body of Jesus went through a door. From our vantage point, it dematerialized and materialized through a door. That's exactly what happened in the tomb. It's as if the body just came through the claws and they were left exactly the way they were, except for this little detail, someone folded up the face cloth. And I believe what John is trying to show to his readers that people who steal bodies or disciples who hide bodies don't do that. Example. Sometime earlier, Jesus learned that his friend Lazarus had died and was, in fact, in a tomb four days. And when Christ came to the tomb, he called Lazarus forth. And what did everyone see? They saw a man rise from the dead and come out, but was absolutely bound by grave clothes. And Jesus said to someone, unbind him set him free. John's record teaches us that Jesus Christ, who said earlier, no one takes my life from me. I will lay it down and I will raise it up, actually did that that day. He actually did. You see the miracle here? The miracle of the resurrection is, 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 is huge. But do you see the miracle within the miracle? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified, dead, and buried. And on the third day, he rose up through the grave clothes, leaving them as they were, as evidence, so that when John took a look in there, he goes, I believe, disputing all the criticism that maybe somebody stole his body. 
I'll try to make this little story short. My point is that when people steal things, they don't leave them nicely behind. Many years ago, in fact, I was, it was a Sunday morning, and I hadn't been in our garage for a while, and I went in the garage, and one of the windows was broken, and there was blood on our car, some of my tools were stolen, and you would think that that would bother me. But what bothered me was the so-called perpetrators of the crime had nicely cut a piece of plywood from my stock of wood and nailed it on my window. And of course, my mind would be like you. What kind of fool would break into my garage, steal my stuff, and then nicely board up the window for me so no one else can get in? Well, to make this long story short, meeting with the RCMP in a day or so later, one of them attended our church and was a friend of mine, and he said, and I pointed this fact out to him, I said, what kind of an idiot, I might have, might have used the word other than idiot, what kind of idiot would board up the window after stealing from me? He goes, Jim, I did that. We were in your garage, we already investigated, and I felt sorry for you, so I boarded up the window. You you see the point? People don't steal a body and then just leave it perfectly neat and tidy. And that's the point John is making. Now, I want to be cautious because I'm, I'm trying to think what some of you might think. The fact that the grave was empty and the linen was left so neatly does not in itself prove the resurrection. The proof of the resurrection is the empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus together. That's what's going to come after today's study. But this is powerful powerful evidence that something miraculous took place. And in John's case, he believed. The second point that I wanted to make is that John's testimony here gives, makes a powerful statement about Scripture. Look at verses 8 and 9, particularly verse 9 again. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture. We don't know what John was talking about. Psalm 16, verse 10, speaks of, it's a messianic psalm, and it speaks of Jesus Christ, it speaks of Jesus Christ, and the psalmist writes that his his soul will not see corruption. There are multitudes of Old Testament Scriptures that imply at least and or some refer to the scriptures john is thinking several decades later we really didn't understand the scriptures but we shouldn't miss the subtle point that john is making 
John believed in the resurrection because he was at the empty tomb. But days later, weeks later, and decades later, and years later, the proof of the resurrection was not the empty tomb, it was the scriptures. Now I'm building a case with you, and I need you to track with me. I won't be much longer, so just please hang in here. Just say, Lord, help me keep my mind alert. Even days later, it was not the empty tomb that gave evidence to the resurrection. It was the scriptures. Turn with me to Luke 24. You've been here before. We won't spend a lot of time. Matthew, Mark, Luke 24. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. He meets two disciples that were concerned about what was happening in, in, in the Jerusalem and area. They were concerned about the Christ. And in Luke 24, we read that Jesus speaks to them. They didn't know it was Jesus yet. And he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Uh, maybe my mind's different than you, but couldn't Jesus have just said to these people, you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead? <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> I'll reveal myself to you. He didn't. He pointed them to the Scriptures, not the empty tomb. And then he went on, it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, and he interpreted to them all the scriptures that were concerning himself. Please understand the point I'm making is it was not the empty tomb that gave the church grounds for the resurrection of Christ. It was the scriptures. Decades that would follow, millennia that would follow, it was the scriptures that gave evidence to the empty tomb or to the resurrection of Christ. Pastor Josh read that in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that the first order of business was that he proclaimed the gospel. And he said, Jesus died according to the Scriptures, that Jesus rose again according to to the scriptures. Paul was a contemporary. He could have said, Jesus rose again according to Mary Magdalene. He could have said, Jesus rose again according to Matthew. Jesus rose again according to Peter. Jesus rose again according to whatever. He never said that. He said, Jesus rose again according to the Scriptures. Now, here's where I summarize my case for today. I need you to think about this. You already know from 1 Corinthians 15 
that our entire faith, the Christian faith, rests on the resurrection. Has everyone got that? You picture a diagram of uh, something that embodies the entire Christian faith rests on the resurrection. Okay? If the resurrection didn't happen, there's no faith. So you picture the entire embodiment of the Christian faith is sitting on the shoulders of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let me finish the diagram. What is the resurrection of Jesus Christ sitting on? And if you're thinking scriptures, you're thinking the right answer. Beloved, you need to really let this settle in. The entire faith, Christian faith, that we come to believe and receive and to express is resting on the shoulders of the resurrection, which in itself is resting totally on the Scriptures. So my application for you today, the question that you need to think about is, does your view of the Bible handle that? Does your view of the Bible handle that? When somebody says to you in casual conversation, how do you know the resurrection is true? Is it sufficient for you to say, because the Bible tells me so? Or do you find it necessary to garner up all kinds of physical evidence and manuscript evidence and, as you were, take them with John to peer into the empty tomb. Because the church in its entirety has rested totally on the Bible. When somebody says to you, how do you know there's a God? Do you find your mind going all through the, 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 the universe, the billions of galaxies, the eyes, the inner body, the nature, create. is that where you want to prove? Or are you so content this morning in God's holy word that you can say, I know there's a God because the Bible tells me so. And somebody says, well, how do you know there's a heaven? How do you know there's a hell? Does your view of Scripture, is it enough for you this morning to say, because the Scriptures say so? You say, well, where are you getting? Remember, the Christian faith rests on the resurrection. The resurrection rests on the, on the Scriptures. If the Scriptures are wrong, all that's gone. And I'm just wondering this morning, at Elk Point Baptist Church, you who put your faith in Christ, is your view of the Bible so gloriously grand and sufficient that when someone says, how do you know that there's a heaven, you're able to say, because the Bible tells me so. 
And somebody says to you, probably more of a contemporary conversation, well, how do you know there's two genders? Are you content to turn and say, because the Bible tells me so? When someone turns to you and says, well, how do you know that God intended marriage between a man and a woman as a lifetime commitment? How do you know that to be true? Are you so confident in the Word of God that you can say, because the Bible tells me so? I used to watch Larry King from time to time. There were two individuals that surfaced from all those programs that Larry King had that were absolutely amazing to me. The first individual was Billy Graham. And the second individual is John MacArthur. And if my memory serves me correctly, there was never one instance when Larry would ask either of them a question that they wouldn't preface their remarks with this. Well, Larry, the Bible says. I'm wondering if your understanding and your appreciation and your sense of sufficiency, use that word intentionally, that your sense of sufficiency is enough to answer the big questions in life by simply saying, the Bible says. On a Lord's Day morning in 1522, March the 10th, Martin Luther preached a sermon. And here's a paragraph from his sermon. He says, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept and drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such a loss upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to foment trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany. Indeed, I, I, have, I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would it have been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word do it all. What do you suppose is Satan's thought when one tries to do a thing by kicking up a row? He sits back in hell and thinks, oh, what a fine game that poor fools are up to now. Listen, but when we spread the word alone and let it alone do the work, that distresses him. 
for it is almighty and it takes captive the hearts. And when the hearts are captured, the work will fall itself. John was probably in his 80s when he wrote the Gospel of John. It was published just prior to the late, uh, late 80s, AD 90. Stop and think about this. There was no television. There's no public school system. No concept of university and academia was just developing. The Jews under, under Domitian had been scattered all around Asia Minor. And John had the audacity to think that he writing a gospel of, of, of Jesus' life and ministry had the power to change the lives of readers in A.D. 90. Just think of that. I know it's blatantly obvious when you open up the Bible, but John believed that when men and women and boys and girls would receive his gospel and read it, that if they, it would convince them that Jesus was the Christ and it would con compel them to believe on him, and if they did, they would have life in his name. It was simply the Scriptures. You see, folks, the audacious statement of the Christian church is this, that our faith is founded on the truth, the veracity, the confidence, the sufficiency, the authority, the inerrancy of the Bible. And that in itself will bring men and women into the kingdom. And you will ask me this morning, how do you know that? And my answer is, the Bible tells me so. Let's pray. Father, you have given us a gift and a treasure and a rock and a foundation that is so incredibly powerful, so incredibly relevant, so incredibly sufficient. It is your holy word that you would leave to your people not just a written account of your will, but a book that has power to reduce kingdoms, to refute every false notion to raise to the earth anything that lifts its head against you. You have given us a book that through its power causes people to be born again. You've given us a book that answers all our question about doctrine and every issue we will face in life. 
pray, Heavenly Father, that you would be pleased to this morning, to those who are listening and those who have ears to hear. They will gain an incremental confidence that your word is enough. And when we are backed into a corner and think that we are at our end, we can say with Luther, I did nothing. The word did it all. You have exalted your word and your name above all things. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that each individual here who knows you as Savior and Lord would have the same appreciation and reverence, the same honor, the same obedience to your holy word. And I ask that this occur for your glory, for your honor, and for the ultimate joy of your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as I have the privilege of sharing with you God's benediction on your life from 2 Thessalonians 2. And now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. God bless you.